Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number five, 1 Samuel, chapter 2, continued. Well, I sure hope you're ready for a bit of a tough lesson and a little frank talk today. This is one of those lessons that makes me a little nervous. But at the same time, I think it needs to be addressed. Open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 2. 1 Samuel chapter 2. Take a look at the top of chapter 2, and time doesn't permit me to completely reread those first ten verses that section of the Tanakh that is titled Hannah's Prayer or Hannah's Song. So I want you to just silently and quickly take about 15 seconds to just skim over those first 10 verses so you've got your bearings this morning. Please, everyone, just a few seconds to do that. Now, while you're still reading, I want you to notice that this psalm is mostly a series of couplets that explains God's activity on earth and the means by which he balances the scales of divine justice. These couplets are often used as a method to, uh, that literary types call merism in order that they can get their point across. For instance, we're told that God kills and he makes alive. God sends people down to the grave and he raises them up from the grave. The idea is that we're given two outer boundaries of human existence, life and death, and that God actively controls both of these and everything that lies in between. This eloquent psalm of gratitude and deliverance that poured out from the depths of Hannah's soul was the result of the once barren Hannah miraculously conceiving and giving birth to a son, Sam, Samuel, Shmuel, all right, in Hebrew. And we studied this at length last week, and I'm afraid if you missed that lesson, you're going to be at a little bit of a disadvantage this week. Now, last week I gave you the all-important context for framing these passages. And also pointed out that this psalm not only glorified God for his mercies towards Hannah, but also very effectively summarized several of Yehovah's fundamental and eternal characteristics. And it's those fundamental characteristics that is going to play a large role in today's class. Now, I hope you can recall the context that I'm speaking about, because I'm going to take us on a significant detour at this time to some well-known teachings in the New Testament that bear the identical context. Yet almost universally, that critical context is either not defined when these 
Old or New Testament passages are taught, or it's erroneously defined, and thus a terribly important principle for the well-being of the individual believer and Messiah's church in general gets lost. Turn now, in your Bibles, to the last book of the Bible. The book of Revelation. We're going to read extensively. In fact, we're going to read the first three chapters in their entirety this morning. Now this section is usually called the letters to the seven churches of Asia. And I don't think I need to convince you that these seven congregations were, at least in John's day, actual messianic assemblies, churches, that existed. But at the same time, it's important that we bear in mind that these seven letters form a prophetic and a general message to the church and it's representative of all congregations of Christ going by whatever particular name they're known by today. Okay? And while these admonitions are pertinent to all believers at all times in every age, they bear extraordinary significance as the time of the return of Yeshua approaches, which is where we are now in history, thus the reason for the detour. And after we finish reading, I'll restate that context for understanding these verses, but for those who retain a good grasp of what we discussed last time, you're going to have a little bit of a head start. So... We're going to read now all of Revelation chapters 1, 2, and 3. This is the revelation which God gave to Yeshua the Messiah so that he could show his servants what must happen very soon. He communicated it by sending his angel to his servant Yohanan, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Yeshua the Messiah as much as he saw. Blessed are the reader and the hearers of of the words of this prophecy, provided they obey the things written in it, because the time is near. From John to the seven messianic communities in the province of Asia, grace and shalom to you from the one who is, who was, and who is coming from the sevenfold spirit before his throne, from Yeshua the Messiah, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the earth's kings. To him, the one who loves us, who has freed us from our sins at the cost of his blood, who has caused us to be a kingdom, that is, priests for God, his Father, to him be the glory and the rulership forever and ever. Amen. Look, he's coming in the clouds. Every eye will see him, including those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the land will mourn him. Yes, amen. I am the A and the Z, says Adonai, God of heaven's armies, the one who is, who was, and who is coming. I, John, am a brother of yours and a fellow sharer in the suffering, kingship, and perseverance that comes from being united with Yeshua. I had been exiled to the island called Patmos, for having proclaimed the message of God and borne witness to Yeshua. I came to be in the Spirit on the day of the Lord. And I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, 
Write down what you see on a scroll and send it to the seven messianic communities. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned around to see who was speaking to me. And when I had turned, I saw seven gold menorahs. And among the menorahs was someone like a son of man, wearing a robe down to his feet and a gold band around his chest. His head and hair were as white as snow-white wool. His eyes like fiery flame. His feet like burnished brass refined in a furnace. And his voice like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars out of his mouth, one a sharp, double-edged sword. And his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell down at his feet like a dead man. He placed his right hand upon me. He said, don't be afraid. I am the first and the last, the living one. I was dead. But look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys to death and Sheol. So write down what you see, both what is now and what will happen afterwards. Here is the secret meaning of the seven stars you saw in my right hand and of the seven gold menorahs. The seven stars are the angels of the seven messianic communities and the seven menorahs are the seven messianic communities. Chapter 2 To the angel of the messianic community in Ephesus write, Here is the message from the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven gold menorahs. I know what you've been doing, how hard you have worked, how you've persevered, and how you can't stand wicked people. So you tested those who called themselves emissaries but aren't, and you found them to be liars. You are persevering. You have suffered for my sake without growing weary, but I have this against you. You have lost the love you had at first. Therefore, remember where you were before you fell and turn from this sin and do what you used to do before. Otherwise, I will come to you and remove your menorah from its place if you don't turn from your sin. But you have this in your favor. You hate what the Nicolaitans do. I hate it too. Now those who have ears, let them hear what the Spirit is saying to the Messianic communities. To him winning the victory, am I saying your Bibles, to him who overcomes. I will give the right to eat from the tree of life which is in God's Gan Eden. Now to the angel of the Messianic community in Smyrna write, Here is the message from the first and the last who died and came alive again. I know you are suffering and how poor you are, though in fact you are rich. And I know the insults of those who call themselves Jews but aren't. On the contrary, they are a synagogue of the adversary. Don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer. Look, the adversary is going to have some of you thrown in prison in order to put you to the test. You will face an ordeal for ten days. Remain faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your crown. Those who have ears, let them hear what the Spirit is saying to the Messianic communities. He who wins the victory will not be hurt at all by the second death. Now to the angel of the Messianic community and Pergamum write, here is a message from the one who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you are living, 
there where the adversary's throne is. Yet you are holding on to my name. You did not deny trusting me even at a time when my faithful witness Antipas was put to death in your town there where the adversary lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have some people who hold to the teaching of Balaam who taught Balak to set a trap for the people of Israel so that they would eat food that had been sacrificed to idols to commit sexual sin. Likewise, you too have people who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, turn from these sins. Otherwise, I will come to you very soon and make war against them with the sword of my mouth. Those who have ears, let them hear what the Spirit is saying to the Messianic communities. To him winning the victory, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone on which is written a new name that nobody knows except the one receiving it. Now to the angel of the messianic community of Thyatira write, Here is the message from the Son of God God whose eyes are like a fiery flame and whose feet are like burnished brass. I know what you are doing. Your love, trust, service, and perseverance. And I know that you are doing more now than before. But I have this against you. You continue to tolerate that Isabel woman, the one who claims to be a prophet, but is teaching and deceiving my servants to commit sexual sin and to eat food that's been sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to turn from her sin, but she, has, she doesn't want to repent of her immorality. So I'm throwing her into a sickbed. And those who commit adultery with her, I'm throwing into great trouble. Unless... They turn from the sins connected with what she does, and I will strike her children dead. Then all the Messianic communities will know that I am the one who searches minds and hearts, and that I will give to each of you what your deeds deserve. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, to those who do not hold to this teaching, who have not learned what some people call the deep things of the adversary, I say this. I am not loading you up with another burden. Only hold fast to what you have until I come. To him who wins the victory and does what I want until the goal is reached. I will give him authority over the nations. Uh, He will rule them with a staff of iron and dash them to pieces like pottery. Just as I have received authority from my father, I will also give him the morning star. Those who have ears, let them hear what the Spirit is saying to the Messianic communities. Chapter 3. To the angel of the Messianic community in Sardis, write, Here is the message from the one who has the sevenfold Spirit of God and the seven stars. I know what you're doing. You have a reputation for being alive. But in fact, you're dead. Wake up. Strengthen what remains before it dies too. For I have found what you are doing incomplete in the sight of God. So remember what you received and heard and obey it. Turn from your sin. For if you don't wake up, I'll come like a thief. And you don't know at what moment I'll come upon you. Nevertheless, you do have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. And they will walk with me, clothed in white, because they're worthy. 
He who wins the victory will, like them, be dressed in white clothing. I will not blot his name out of the book of life. In fact, I'll acknowledge him individually before my Father and before his angels. Those who have ears, let them hear what the Spirit is saying to the Messianic communities. Now, to the angel of the Messianic community in Philadelphia, right? Here's the message of HaKodesh, the true one. The one who has the key of David, who if he opens something, no one else can shut it. And if he closes something, no one else can open it. I know what you're doing. Look, I have put in front of you an open door and no one can shut it. I know that you have but little power, yet you've obeyed my message and you have not disowned me. Here I will give you some from the synagogue of the adversary, those who call themselves Jews but aren't. On the contrary, they're lying. See, I will cause them to come and prostrate themselves at your feet. They'll know that I have loved you. Because you did obey my message about persevering. I will keep you from the time of trial coming upon the whole world to put the people living on earth to the test. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take away your crown. I will make him who wins the victory a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will never leave it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of my God's city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from my God and my own new name. Those who have ears, let them hear what the Spirit is saying to the Messianic communities and to the angel of the Messianic community in Laodicea, write, Here is the message from the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know what you're doing, but you're neither hot nor cold. How I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I vomit you out of my mouth. For you keep saying, I am rich. I've gotten rich. I don't need a thing. You don't know that you are the one who's wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, naked. My advice to you is to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich. And white clothing so that you may be dressed and not have to be ashamed of your nakedness. And eye salve to rub on your eyes so that you may see. As for me, I rebuke and discipline everyone I love. So exert yourselves. <laughs> Turn from your sins. Here, I'm standing at the door knocking. If someone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him, eat with him. He will eat with me. I will let him who wins the victory sit, sit with me on my throne, just as I myself also won the victory and sat down with my Father on His throne. Those who have ears, let them hear what the Spirit is saying to the Messianic communities. Okay, here comes the crux. Today's lesson. Most of us have been well taught, and correctly so, by 
pastors and prophecy experts and Bible teachers that the crux of the matter that Messiah is addressing to his, in his letters to the seven churches follows each time the words and to him that overcomes or in the complete Jewish Bible and to him winning the victory are spoken. Thus we have seven different letters to seven different churches that that common phrase about the vital matter of overcoming is therefore repeated in each letter and then it's followed by what it is that the believer is going to receive as an eternal reward if if biggest two letter word in the Bible if he or she overcomes in other words the format we just read is that first we have a list of comments or complaints by Messiah Jesus the founder and head of the church along with a warning that those who belong to these congregations are in a grave spiritual danger This is followed, then, with a statement of what it is that those who do overcome this particular grave spiritual danger will receive as their just reward. This is as opposed to those who do not overcome. And at the heart of each requirement is a significant change in spiritual attitude, sometimes in doctrine, and always in behavior. So, beginning with the letter to the church at Ephesus, and then ending with the church at Laodicea, we have these seven rewards pronounced for the overcoming believers. One, the right to eat from the tree of life, meaning eternal life. Two, they will not be harmed. That is, they'll avoid the second death, which is referring to that eternal lake of fire that comes at the final judgment of all mankind. Third, they'll be given guaranteed access to the banquet of the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's the meaning of the new manna. With the white stone as their entry ticket. And each stone personalized with a secret new name um, that nobody else will have or know. Fourth, the victor shall be given authority to rule over nations. Fifth, they will be given white robes indicating a condition of absolute purity, perfect ritual cleanliness, and personally introduced one at a time to the Father Creator and be given a personal guarantee of living forever in His presence. Six, the one who overcomes will be able to serve at the temple of God and be permitted to live in the new Jerusalem. And seventh, they will be allowed to sit with Christ on His throne, so intimate will be this relationship, and even share His authority. Wow. Now, if you're able to imagine and visualize all of this, I applaud you. Because it's way too much for my puny little mind to grasp. 
But here's the thing that is clear. It's not hard to understand. What these seven rewards describe is what that thing that we all hope for, living eternally with God, amounts to. But what it also means is that many who are part of those seven representative congregations but who refuse to hear the Messiah's warnings, open their eyes, and change their ways, will not live eternally with God because they did not overcome. Please understand, this is not about some church members receiving jewels in their crowns while others just kind of barely squeeze into heaven, so to speak. Okay? This is about eternal life for some, no eternal life for others, but everybody is seemingly satisfied in their own minds that they'd already won this victory, and so the whole matter was settled. Let's go back to our context so that we can see what this has to do with us, his believers in this modern age, after Yeshua. Now, I told you last week that Hannah's prayer only concerned God's redeemed people. There is no reference. This is why I had you read it. There is no reference to pagans. There's no comparison to the heathen. There's no contrast with non-followers of the God of Israel. Thus, in Hannah's prayer, those who are killed by God were equally as much a part of God's redeemed people, Israel, as those who were made alive by God. A good example of this was the, ser- was the serpent on the pole matter during the wilderness journey when thousands of Israelites were killed by the Lord, but thousands more were healed by the Lord. Okay. Hannah's song speaks of those who were wealthy but suddenly were brought low as equally a part of Israel as those who were poor but became exalted. Those who were well fed and had plenty to eat but now had to fight for a crumb of bread were part of the redeemed congregation of God and those who were hungry but now had abundance were also part of the redeemed congregation of God and so on. Thus, Hannah's song is only speaking about the relationship Yehovah has with his own people and has nothing to do with those who don't belong to him. I mean, do you hear that? You can see that. You can read it for yourselves. Okay? This is another key to today's lesson, so hold that firmly at the front of your minds as we continue. Coming back to Revelation. The message of Revelation chapters 1 through 3 is in the same mold as Hannah's song because it only concerns God's people. His believers. His followers. This series of seven messages only concerns Israel and those spiritually joined to Israel by means of trusting in God's Messiah. The seven letters of Revelation are addressed strictly, strictly, to the body of believers, not to others. These things aren't addressed to pagans or people that we even call seekers. 
And by the way, do, don't be confused about this. A seeker is not somebody who's kind of midway between a pagan and a believer. There are non-believers, as you can only believe or not believe. There's not such a thing as a seeker that's kind of in the middle. There's no hybrid of the two states of believing and not believing. However, what is usually assumed, and often flatly stated, when Revelation 1-3 through is taught, is that these letters represent a contrast between the church and the world. And that the challenge set down by Jesus is for the believer to overcome the increasingly wicked ways of the unbelieving world in order for his followers to achieve victory and gain the rewards he's promised. Put another way, that dynamic is usually set up as the church at large, as the overcomers who get these rewards, and the pagans at large, as those who've not overcome, so they get the shaft. I'm here to tell you this is not so. That kind of interpretation completely defies the obviously plain context of what we just read. It completely misses the point. Rather, this is about the dynamics of what goes on within the walls of the organized institutional church. And when I say church, I mean it is a common term that indicates all aspects of Christian or Messianic activity. So I'm not picking on anybody or anything. These warnings from Christ are all about the individual believer overcoming false doctrines, peer pressure, the political correctness, the bad teaching, the watering down of the gospel to to, to merely being a social and prosperity formula, and the herd mentality of the organized fellowships of believers that we commonly call churches or denominations, whatever name you want to give to it. Like Hannah's prayer, this is about God's people only. Does that put these matters into a different perspective for you? Does it unnerve you just a little bit? It ought to. See, this is not a situation where again in common terms we had Jesus perfecting his church or quibbling over optional things in order to spur us on to greater ministry. Instead, he's dividing and separating true believers from those who claim to be, and many utterly certain they are, all right, but they're not in his eyes. This is separating the sheep from the goats, so to speak, within the church. In Hannah's day, the institution of the priesthood had become a dysfunctional Ponzi scheme that no longer served any real divine or spiritual purpose. It was an institution that spoke of God constantly. Oh, it used all of his symbols, but had long ago stopped serving or obeying him. 
In Revelation, we find a parallel situation. So these seven letters are about the priesthood of believers. Christians, Messianics. Many who have been co-opted by the institution of the church. A man-made institution merely purporting to be God-made. And then swayed by all the trappings of religion. An institution that in some cases has become quite dysfunctional. Hardly has any real divine or spiritual purpose anymore. These letters speak of a collection of seven congregations that at one time apparently were on the right track. But now have, each in their own way, fallen away. While others have done well and remained faithful, but they're under condemnation by the fallen churches for not following them into the abyss. In Ephesus, loving the Lord had become secondary and lip service. And so without Him as their guide, they had been easily enticed into great sin and lost their way. And you know what? They're utterly unaware of it. In Smyrna, they're suffering and hurting from the barbs and insults of brothers and sisters who claim to be the followers of God, but they're not. In Pergamum, they insist on doing everything, it says, in Christ's name. And to be the true standard bearers of the Christian faith. Yet they have taken on the role of who? Balaam. Who did everything he could to curse and destroy Israel. By means of enticing Israel to forget their unique heritage and instead adopt the ways of the pagan Gentiles. In Thyatira, the congregation has taken to following church members who hold themselves up as pious prophets who get special messages from God. But these self-appointed prophets are actually leading the sheep into sexual immorality and sin. In Sardis, the congregation is large, vibrant, well-known. And this makes them think they must be in harmony with God. But Yeshua says that it's all a mirage. They're actually just dead men walking. In Philadelphia, Yeshua says he knows they're just small in size with very little influence in the realm of the institutional church. Barely a blip on the radar screen but that he's going to actually send folks to them from some of these other more visible and apostate churches so that at least a few can come and learn truth and live faithfully and be saved away from what's going to happen to those who stubbornly remain in their apostate congregations. And finally at Laodicea, the issue is that people have become passive, utterly passive, While on the one hand, they certainly have not openly renounced their faith. On the other, they've lost all enthusiasm for the Savior. No sense of obligation to serve Him even exists anymore. No desire to obey Him, or to grow in Him, or to help expand His kingdom. 
exists among them anymore. Listen to Matthew 7.22. On that day, many will say to me, But Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we cast out demons in your name? Didn't we perform many miracles in your name? Then I'll tell them to their faces, I never knew you. Get away from me, you workers of lawlessness. I wonder which one of these seven representative congregations are we attached to as individuals? Which one of these best describes the denomination or the fellowship where we worship? Which one are our families and friends associated with? You know, while no man, no man can truly know another man's heart, that's left up to God. We are told in His Word that we can tell something about a person or a group, including to a degree, to a degree, their spiritual condition, by their fruit. I think it's reasonable to look to some of our greatest and most faithful church leaders and to at least take into account their view on the general condition of the body of believers and see if it fits with what Yeshua says here in Revelation. You know, several years ago, during a TV interview with Larry King, Billy Graham stated that he had come to the sad conclusion that at best, probably no more than 30% of folks that attend church regularly are actually saved. Now, Billy Graham's organization also followed up on the hundreds of thousands, probably millions, who came forward over the years at his crusades and found that fewer than 2% demonstrated any evidence of continuing in the faith. Now, I imagine that doesn't really shock many of you. You probably looked around suspected all this, even if you didn't want to believe it. It hurts too much. You didn't want to say it out loud. So does that mean, then, that we have churches today that are 70% seekers and 30% who profess to be Christians. No, that's not what this means. It means exactly what we just read in Revelation and I just quoted from Matthew. That many who think they've received their fire insurance actually bought a phony policy. How is that possible? Well, that exact situation has really kind of been the point of everything that has followed and flowed from the book of Exodus onward in God's word when by means of his laws and commands the Lord has defined just who he is and what he expects from those who want fellowship with him. And what we learn is that when we put aside any aspect of his written word, when we deny any part of his unchanging and indivisible nature and his character, we stop acknowledging the true God and begin worshiping a non-existent God that is made in our image of what we think a God ought to be. 
We rely on a false God whom we have conjured up. And too many of our religious institutions uphold rather than tear down. This is called idolatry. In Hannah's day, the men in charge of God's sanctuary, those Levite priests, put away the Torah. And they decided to follow a system of man-made doctrines and traditions and observances that they claimed were the same thing as the word of God. But God wasn't buying it. In our day, and at the end of days, many men who are in charge of our our Christian religious institutions have put away the Bible and have decided instead to follow a pious and very nice sounding system of man-made traditions and doctrines and observances that they say are the same thing as the Word of God. Well, guess what? All you have to do is read Revelation. And Messiah Yeshua says, he's not buying that either. I remember... What a bombshell this reality was when it first struck me. First off, it scared me. Then later, it depressed me. Later, it blessed me. Because I now had the knowledge to make a change. Perhaps make a difference. Folks, this isn't my word. This is God's warning directly taken from His Word. Yeah, it's hard-hitting. It's sobering. Pretty unsettling. This is why we took the time to read these three chapters fully so that we can not only see the connected parallel of these letters of the seven churches to Hannah's song, but also that we can feel the impact of what God is telling us in proper context, leaving nothing out. And hopefully we can take corrective action as it applies to each of us as believers and as a congregation of believers. But what is that corrective action going to look like, at least in some cases? Before we move on with 1 Samuel 2, I want to read from one more place in the book of Revelation that has that answer. Turn to Revelation chapter 18. Revelation chapter 18. I'm going to read the first five verses. Page 1549 if you have the complete Jewish Bible. After these things I saw another angel come down from heaven and he had great authority and the earth was lit up by a splendor and he cried out in a strong voice she has fallen she has fallen Babel the great she has become a home for demons prison for every unclean spirit prison for every unclean hated bird for all the nations have drunk of the wine of God's fury caused by her whoring yes the kings of the earth went whoring with her and from her unrestrained Strained love of luxury, the world's businessmen have grown rich. And then I heard another voice out of heaven saying, My people, come out of her, so that you will not share in her sins, so that you will not be infected by her plagues, because her sins are a sticky mass piled up to heaven, and God 
has remembered her crimes. Come out of her, my people. As hard as it is for us to do, this is the prescribed correction, corrective action for believers who want to stand again with the Lord. Sometimes there is no choice but to walk away. The great whore of Babylon is that part of the institutional religious assemblies that has become so dysfunctional that it has become the apostate church. What is an apostate church? It means it claims to be the church with Christ as its head. It means it calls on Jesus' name for authority. It means it sure looks good and it sounds good provided you don't lift up the skirt and look too close. But it also means that the Lord's laws and commands have been ditched. And the recognition of His nature exchanged in favor of something else that's just not God. And applying the principle of the seven letters to the seven churches to this passage in Revelation 18, despite Christianity's proclivity to want to identify but one of the hundreds of man-made denominations as the whore of Babylon, it's usually said to be the Catholic Church, that's pretty doubtful. This isn't about people who belong to one institutional church denomination that's gone astray and all the rest of them are just fine. Instead, we will find this tendency towards whoring, unfaithfulness, and apostasy spread throughout the earthly religious institutions in general. Certainly it's not a universal condition. And certainly many church institutions are fighting very hard to stay on or even return to a pure path. Now how can I be so certain about Revelation 18 is God is calling out His people and He's not really speaking to the pagan world. He's calling them my people. All right. God's people has always been and will always be God's true followers. My people are not pagans. My people are not the apostate. Even the term whoring, which biblically means to be unfaithful, either to God or to a husband, it really only has meaning when applied to God's followers. Whoring is what happens when a wife cheats on her husband. Whoring is what happens when a believer prefers to see elements of religious or humanistic philosophies added to or substituted for the pure worship of Yehovah because it pleases us or it allows us to become more acceptable to our peers. So the issue addressed in Revelation 18 is very similar as the issue addressed in Revelation chapters 1, 2, and 3. Individual believers overcoming authoritative religious institutions that claim to represent the Lord on earth, but they don't follow His word and they don't honor His laws and commands. They're, the, the, these are religious institutions that claim the Bible 
as their holy text, but then they turn around and denounce the majority of it as no longer relevant. These are organizations that on the one hand say God never changes, but on the other say that sometime between the books of Ezra and Matthew, God traded in one set of characteristics for a newer set, and thus one set of commandments for another. The question and the challenge before us, before us all, is the one that Christ set down in his seven letters. Will we take the harder road and accept our personal responsibility and overcome? Or will we stay on the easier road and prefer comfort and familiarity and popularity to the truth? And in time, be very surprised by the inevitable eternal consequences. Let's get back to 1 Samuel chapter 2 and spend about five minutes there and finish it up today. 1 Samuel chapter 2. I'm going to read just six verses from 11 through 17. Elkanah went home to Ramah and while the child began ministering in Adonai under the direction of Eli the Kohen. Eli's sons were scoundrels who had no regard for Adonai. The rule these priests followed in dealing with the people was that when anyone offered a sacrifice, the, the priest's servant would come and while the meat was stewing with a three-pronged fork in his hand, he, uh, I'm sorry, the rule was the priest followed, followed in dealing with the people was that when anyone offered a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was still stewing with a three-pronged fork in his hand. He would stick it in the pan, kettle, cauldron, or pot, and the priest would take for himself whatever the fork brought up. This is how they dealt with the people of Israel who came up to Shiloh. The Cohen's servant would actually come before the fat had burned to smoke and say to the man who was sacrificing, give the priest the meat so he can roast it because he didn't want your meat stewed. He wants it raw. And so man answered, well, first let the fat burn to smoke, then take as much as you want. He'd say, no, give it to me now, or I'll take it by force. The sin of these young men was very serious in Adonai's view because they treated offerings made to God with contempt. After dropping off the kindergarten-aged Samuel at Shiloh and entrusting him into the care of the high priest Eli, Elkanah, Hannah, and Peninnah pack up and they return to their home in Ramah. And Shmuel began serving the Lord at this startlingly early age as this was the vocation his mother had dedicated him to for his lifetime. Now verse 12 begins to explain just how darkly apostate the Levite priesthood had become by now and Eli's sons were the worst actors. Okay. Verse 13 gives an example of the despicable things they did starting with their wandering around to the cooking pots of the many worshippers who came to the tabernacle to, to offer their vow and thanks offerings the various kinds of the zevah, shlamim offerings and they would... and, and, and partake in the sacred worshippers portion of that sacrificial meat. Okay? Eli's sons would poke their specially made extra long forks into the vessels of boiling meat and whatever became attached to their forks, they kept. 
You know, this kind of smacks of the mafioso. You know, wandering into small shops of frightened shopkeepers and helping themselves to whatever caught their eye as payment for their so-called services. <coughs> this had apparently become a custom at Shiloh that was expected and accepted. And these sons of Eli don't appear to meet any resistance from the laymen who come to worship and sacrifice. In fact, this dishonorable practice even had a certain false spiritual sense to it. Because the idea was that by the priests blindly sticking their forks into that murky stew, whatever it was that became attached to their forks was God's providence. And thus, they only stabbed at each pot once and then they accepted as God's will however much or little meat they managed to skewer. Although it appears to be part of this same example, what's referred to in verse 15 is actually yet another way these two priests took the worshippers' food from them. When the fat portion, the best portion, of the sacrificial animal was burning up on the altar, the priest would come and take other portions of the meat in raw form away from the worshipper because they wanted to roast it. They didn't want it boiled. Well, I don't blame them for that. The law was that until the fat that was offered had been completely burned up on the altar, it was not yet time for the priests or the worshiper to take his own portion. But the sons of Eli were too greedy to wait. When someone did protest, they bullied them into submission. Now it was bad enough that Eli's sons badly mistreated those over whom they had authority and that they were supposed to be serving. But the far bigger crime here was against God because they were robbing what belonged to Him and ignoring the sacred rituals He ordained in favor of their own ways. This was called in verse 17 a very great or very serious sin. This is another way of saying a high-handed sin referring to a type of trespass for which there was no atonement available. Now, what made their sin particularly terrible was that as God's priests, they brought the sacrifice itself into contempt. Imagine what these Israelite worshippers thought as they watched men who were supposed to be the most godly, the most pious and anointed representatives of Jehovah on earth turn their sacrifices that were essential to the well-being of every Hebrew, into little more than their personal food fest. These people had traveled substantial distances in difficult conditions to obey God, to do as He commanded. And they were met by white-robed thugs who hid behind God's holy name so that they would profit. Apparently this went on for a long time because and it had become very usual. Where was the justice in all of this? That's what we're going to see next week.